Just like many people, I am absolutely fascinated by the book of Revelation. It's been a study of mine for the last 25 or 30 years. I keep coming back to it and delving into it a little bit more. And one of the things that really, really fascinates me about Revelation, aside from the prophetical aspect, is the number of times that the book of Revelation quotes from or alludes to or echoes the Old Testament. It's, it's absolutely full of references back to the Old Testament. My Bible, my old Bible, I've marked up in Revelation, and just about every single verse is underlined with at least one Old Testament quotation or allusion or echo. And that's what this study is all about. I'm not going to get so much into the prophetical aspects, the history that Revelation records, although we'll, we'll get into that as uh, we come to it. Uh, where it's necessary, but I want to concentrate on the exhortation of the book of Revelation. It is a book of prophecy, but it's also a book of exhortation. And that exhortation really comes out very strongly when we look at the connections back to the Old Testament and ask ourselves the question, why does Revelation keep going back to the Old Testament? What do we mean to grasp with that? Is it just using scriptural language or is there a point to these connections? Now, a number of books and magazine articles have been written on this particular topic. My main point of resource was the, I think it was 1977 Testimony Magazine article by Arthur Gibson. Uh, that magazine cover you see on there is, is an older uh, issue of the testimony. That's not the, the one I'm talking about. But he wrote two articles. He was a linguistic expert. He knew the ancient Hebrew and Greek, and he identified at least 701 quotations. From the Old Testament. He listed them all in this magazine article, and, and many Christadelphians have downloaded that and, and probably marked it up in their in their Bibles. It's an amazing article, and it gives the uh, the the, um, the 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 meaning or the, the the study methodology he used to say that these really are quotations from the Old Testament. Because sometimes they're just one or two words, and you think, well, is that really a quotation? And he he, he tells you why this this is in the article. So. Very, very useful resource. There are other books that have been written. This one by G.K. Beale on John's use of the Old Testament Revelation. I have a copy of that too, and that's been a very useful resource as well. And it's a Bible students, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Playground or something, sandbox. It's, it's a wonderful thing to just look through Revelation, look back at the Old Testament quotations, and try to figure out why is it using that particular language. Now let's think about the, the word revelation itself. It's the title of the book, the revelation. The, the very first phrase of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, a revelation? Well, it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Often we hear the book of Revelation being described as the apocalypse. It's unfortunately taken on a, a new mystical kind of meaning in the modern world when people talk about the apocalypse. But it's just a normal word. The Lunida Dictionary defines it as coming from the idea of to uncover or to take out of hiding, to cause something to be fully known. An analogy I like to use is that of a box with a lid on it. And until you take the lid off the box, you don't know what's inside. And once you take the lid off, you, you find out, oh, that was what was inside. That thing that was hidden and the secret has been revealed. And that's what the book of Revelation does. What the Lord Jesus Christ does is he reveals to us hidden things. He takes the lid off the box and invites us to peer inside. 
which is an amazing thing if you think about it jesus is revealing to us secrets that have been kept secret from the foundation of the world now this idea of the revelation of something which is secret is not exclusive to the book of revelation for instance right at the end of the book of romans this is what the apostle paul says in verse 25 and 26 now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations it's an interesting way that paul ends his treatise on the righteousness of god because if you look at the, through the book of romans it's quite similar to the book of revelation if, in, in that it's full of old testament quotations he goes back to the old testament over and over again to prove his point and he calls this the revelation of the mystery now we're going to be careful with this word mystery which is a word that's used in the book of revelation it's that famous verse about the the harlot for instance in chapter 18 called mystery babylon the great now when we come across the word mystery we might think well it's something mysterious something enigmatic something hard to understand but that's really not what the word mystery means in scripture it simply means something which is hidden or a secret not necessarily something complex or strange simply something that's in the box and we don't know what's in there until we lift the lid off the box so what paul does in the book of romans is he reveals the mystery he takes the lid off the Old Testament scriptures, in effect. And he says, go back to Hosea or the Psalms or Isaiah, whatever it is. And he reveals what was hidden away there in the Old Testament text. That secret that was kept hidden for long ages, but has now been disclosed or revealed. And that word revelation there is the same word, apocalypse. Paul also uses this idea in his epistle to the Ephesians. He says in chapter 3, how the mystery, there's that word again, this thing that was hidden away, was made known to me by revelation. So Paul was given insight into that which was hidden away. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then he explains what that is. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that was something that was hidden away. The Jews didn't understand it, that the Gentiles should be called to the hope of Israel. Paul says this was something that was hidden away. It was a secret, but now it's been revealed. And he does that in the book of Ephesians. He reveals what that mystery is. Now, it's interesting because in the chapter before, in Ephesians chapter 2, what the apostle Paul does is he keeps alluding to the old testament in particular to a specific passage in the prophet isaiah and this will help us illustrate one of the ways in which the new testament uses the old testament so here's a list of connections there's probably more but on the left hand side there of the screen you can see some of the language taken from ephesians chapter 2 in which he talks about the call of the gentiles but the language he uses is not something new. It's all language that he borrows from Isaiah, chapters 56 and 57. So you can see the correlation between the two on screen there. Now, you look at Isaiah chapter 56 and 57, and it's a prophecy about the children of Israel. It was delivered to the children of Israel. 
in the days of Hezekiah especially, to do with things concerning them. But what the Apostle Paul says is that hidden away in Isaiah's prophecy is the mystery of the gospel, the call of the Gentiles. It, it, it's as if it's there in plain sight. You can go back to Isaiah 56, 57 and, and read it in a new light and say, well, there, there are the Gentiles. There's the call of the Gentiles. So that's one example then of the revelation of the mystery and how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, uncovering things that are written there in the text, not something mysterious in the text, but, but it's there in the text for us to read and to grasp that it's uh, talking in this instance about something that we might not otherwise have expected, which is the call of the Gentiles. So there's point number one about um, how the New Testament uses the Old. There's another way, and this is a, a famous passage in Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul here lists four examples, and I've highlighted that word in red there, because that's a, a key word in the text. Four examples of how the children of Israel failed in their wilderness experience. And the whole chapter, or the first half of the chapter, he keeps on going back to the Old Testament, reminding us of things that happened to the children of Israel. But notice what he says in verse 6 here. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And in verses 7 to 10, he lists these four examples don't be idolaters and so forth. And then in verse 11, he returns to that idea of an example. Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ages, uh, the ages, of, the end of the ages has come. So we understand this, don't we? When we read the New Testament, or rather when we read the Old Testament, passages like in the book of Exodus and so on, we read about things that happened to the children of Israel we realize that those things that occurred are examples for us. Now, in this passage, the word examples there is the Greek word typus, from which we get the English word types. We understand a lot of the Old Testament foreshadows, points forward to the New Testament in terms of types. We often talk about people being types of Christ, for example. Well, we look at this in a negative way here, too. The, the types here are what Israel experienced and how they failed. And that becomes a, a type for us, an example for us in a negative sense. And we're, not, we're meant to do the opposite of them and, and succeed where they failed. So that's another way in which the New Testament uses the Old. Whereas the Old Testament was written to the Jews in their day, the lessons that are in, in it are, are applicable to future generations. And we, we understand this when we read the New Testament, the Old Testament. We apply it to ourselves. And that's a very important way in which the book of Revelation uses the Old Testament. Now, one more example, which is a very similar one to the one we just looked at. Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 19 here and see how Peter picks up the language. So Exodus 19 is about Israel. They've been taken out of Egypt. They've been brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the Apostle Peter 
in writing to members of the ecclesia, which probably was dominated at that time by Jews, but is equally applicable to Gentiles, to non-Jews, the people who initially had nothing to do with Exodus chapter 19, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And you can see that every single phrase that Peter uses is taken right out of Exodus chapter 19. So what Peter is saying is, go back to Exodus chapter 19. Look at what God said originally to the children of Israel. Understand the lesson that they were a, a holy nation, for instance. Now, apply that, that, that lesson to yourselves. It's not just about Israel. The lesson, the, the principle governing what God said is equally applicable now in this new historical context, even though Peter is not now talking to people at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that again is how Revelation uses the Old Testament. Revelation keeps on inviting us to go back to the Old Testament, figure out the lesson from the context, bring that lesson forward and apply it in a new historical context. Now, before we, we sum up this, this point, why, the question might be asked, does God choose to hide the truth? Why does God do things this way? Why didn't he write the Old Testament in such a way that it was always in plain sight, for instance, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews? Well, Jesus touches on this question. For instance, in Matthew chapter 11, that is the language here. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now think about, and that's the same idea, the same word apocalypse there, isn't the word apocalypto, which is related to the word apocalypsis, has the same meaning. So think about the context in which Jesus is saying this. He has hidden certain things from the wise and understanding, from people like the scribes and the Pharisees, the wise or the so-called wise and understanding religious leaders of the day who listened to what Jesus said and either were blatantly blind to his words or deaf to his words, choosing not to listen, or just didn't get it at all because it was outside of their... A particular pharisaical understanding of scripture. And of course, that's why eventually they put the, the Lord Jesus Christ to death, because he was disrupting their worldview. So Jesus hid things from the scribes and Pharisees, but he revealed them to his disciples, because the sort of person that God is looking for in his kingdom is not somebody who thinks they know it all. It's not the wise and understanding of this world. God is looking for spiritual little children, people who have humbled themselves to listen to him, to meekly listen to what he says. Scribes and the Pharisees, all they wanted to do was argue. And it was the disciples who chose to listen. Now, go forward a couple of chapters into Matthew 13. And this is the chapter that's full of parables. And parables are not, as some people define them, just pithy little stories with a moral. Parables are designed 
to hide the truth. So Jesus says to his disciples here in Matthew chapter 13, that the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets. There's that word again, secret or mystery. To you disciples who are little children who listen, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the wise and understanding, the proud Pharisee, it has not been given. To the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So Jesus, speaking in parables, deliberately hid the truth. But think about, for instance, in the context of Matthew 13, one of the parables, the most famous of the parables in that chapter, the parable of the sower. Now, the disciples, after Jesus spoke this parable, came up to him and said, what does this parable mean? And Jesus explained what the parable means. He, as it were, lifted the lid off the box to explain what was hidden in the parable. Now, the scribes and Pharisees didn't do that. They didn't come up to Jesus humbly and say, explain to us the parable. They just went away scratching their heads or incensed at the words of Jesus and it went in one ear and out the other. It was hidden from them. But the meek and humble little child attitude of the disciples is what God is looking for. Now, let's apply that then to our study of the book of Revelation. It's easy to come to the Bible with a prideful attitude. I think, well, I know it all. And to come at it with a completely wrong state of mind. What God is looking for is someone to come humbly to his word and listen. And that's what this study is all about. We're going to listen and ask questions and try to seek out what the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us in the Revelation. To look at the language he uses in Revelation look at the signposts that he gives us back to the Old Testament and then listen to the context. And try to learn the lesson in a meek and humble way. That's, that's my methodology. So in this last slide of this first talk, I want to just give you a little graphical representation of the methodology of this study of Revelation. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the book of Revelation little by little. And we're going to piece it together like a jigsaw puzzle. We're going to find those quotations and allusions and echoes that are there in, in the text. We're then going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to read the quotation and the context around it, try to ascertain what is the lesson, what is the principle of that Old Testament text. And then ask ourselves the question, well, well then, in the context of Revelation, why is it pointing us back to that particular passage? And then apply the lessons of the Old Testament to the new context in the book of Revelation. So I ask you to come on this journey with me through this book. And hopefully you'll see that this is an absolutely fascinating study. So in the first session, we had to look at the importance of Old Testament quotations and a methodology for examining them. And we're going to start at the beginning now in Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. In each session, we're going to work our way through the book of Revelation, having a look at it, as many of these quotations as we can, and little by little build up this 
uh, kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, putting all the pieces together to try and figure out what the, the book of Revelation is telling us as, as God in this book is revealing hidden things, secrets from the foundation of the world, things which are hidden away in the Old Testament, but are now revealed in the, the context of the new. So, as I said, we're going to start in verse one. And verse one contains a quotation or a, a couple of phrases here which come out of the book of Daniel. And, and the book of Daniel, as you might expect, is extremely important when it comes to the book of Revelation. And what we're going to see is that Revelation really picks up where Daniel left off. So the first verse here on the screen, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, the words there marked in red on the left-hand side there are taken out of Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 and 29. Uh, they're short phrases, and you might think, well, is this really a quotation? But when we look at the language and the context of Daniel chapter 2, we'll be able to see that Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and the rest of the book really does pick up where Daniel left off. And some of the principles we've already looked at are outlined in Daniel chapter 2, this famous chapter about Nebuchadnezzar's image. So let's just read these verses that in Daniel 2, it says, Daniel answered the king. This is, of course, when Daniel's come in and the king's had his dream and he wants to know what the interpretation is. The wise men of Babylon can't figure it out. And so Daniel comes in and he's going to tell the king the dream. So he said to him there in verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers, the intelligentsia of Babylon can show to, there's the, the words that are used in Revelation, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Now, isn't that interesting language? There's, there's that word that we looked at in the first session, the word mystery, or what it really means is a secret, something that is hidden away. While the king has had something which is hidden to him at the moment, and Daniel is going to reveal it. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's the principle of revelation. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries, there's that language again made known to you what is to be and the the phrase in revelation 1 verse 1 soon to take place is better translated as what is to be what is to come in the future so revelation is signposting us then back to this section in daniel chapter 2 and it's really interesting then to look at the context of the whole chapter not just the dream itself but some of the principles that are outlined in it we're going to look at daniel's prayer uh, for instance and what daniel says to nebuchadnezzar now focusing on that uh, verse 27 there where he says no wise men enchanters magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked it, the principle that comes out of that is that this world the wisdom of this world that was exemplified in those times in the wise men of babylon cannot figure things out it doesn't really know what direction this world is heading in it doesn't know why things happen in this world in, in the the empires and the nations of the world 
as God works out his purpose, the, the wise men of this world are absolutely clueless. And that comes out, doesn't it, in Daniel chapter 2, where the wise men of Babylon, they, they can't tell Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed, let alone interpret the dream for him. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now, there's another little Bible echo here. So there's verse 27 again on the, on the left-hand side. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 11, he declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them, apocalypted them, if that's a, a word, to little children. When we understand that to be spiritual children, we talked about this in our first session of how the humble of the, the world, those who uh, have approached the Bible with this attitude of mind where they're seeking out truth rather than thinking they know it all and they're wise and they're able to figure it out by themselves. No, we need to be little children in our approach to the word of God and as children listen to what God is saying. And if we do that, then those things which are hidden will be revealed to us. So we've got to get let go of the, uh, the, of the wisdom of the world and uh, seek things in the right frame of mind now earlier on in daniel chapter 2 daniel prays about this he's you know under a huge amount of pressure he's before the the king of the world at this point and he's told the king i can interpret the dream so before he does that he prays to god and in his prayer he says this again picking up on this principle that god reveals deep and hidden things he knows what is in the darkness the light dwells with him so that principle then runs all the way through Daniel chapter 2, the idea of revelation itself. It's, it's demonstrated here in this dream. And that's why the book of Revelation, the very first verse of the book of Revelation, takes us right back to Daniel chapter 2, where the principle of how God reveals these deep and hidden things comes out. Now, we won't go into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's image in any detail. I'm sure you've heard a lot of classes on that particular dream. And we'll, we'll come back to it because Revelation uh, alludes to and quotes from Daniel chapter 2 again uh, going forward. It is a very key passage. But I just want to think about one thing that's, that's kind of interesting here. When you think about the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and then Daniel's interpretation, we understand the very common and, and very simple explanation of this image that it's talking about a series of world empires, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is told, you are the head of gold. And after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, which would have been Medo-Persia. And then we get the Greek empire followed by the Roman empire. So we get this series of world empires running throughout history. And then we come to the feet and the toes. Now, some expositors, when they come to this, scratch their heads and think, well, we've got these four world empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then we've got these feet right at the end. What do these feet represent? And some Bible expositors say, well, there has to be a gap, a big gap between the legs and the feet. And, and they look at the, the images as a proportional image where the legs are pretty long compared with the other parts of the body. And the Roman Empire was much longer lasting in, in history than the other empires. 
but then the feet are very small. They're really the, the flattest part of this uh, world, um, this, this continuation of world empires, but with this gap that they want to put in there. And so there are those who call themselves um, futurist interpreters of um, Daniel and Revelation who say, well, there, there's going to be this seven-year period right at the end, which is represented by the feet. Now, that's one way of looking at Nebuchadnezzar's image. But there's another way. And the traditional Christadelphian way of interpreting Bible prophecy in Daniel and Revelation is called the continuous historic method, and that there is no gap between the legs and the feet. You think about it, why, that, why would that make any sense? I mean, legs flow right into your feet. There is no gap. It would be a rather funny-looking image if there was a gap and these feet were kind of floating below the legs of the image. So I believe that what this image represents is a continuous historic look at world history. There is no gap. And, and the Roman Empire, after it finished, flowed right into the feet of the image. Now, one way to demonstrate this is to see that while, if we take this interpretation, the image cannot be proportional in itself. I mean, the feet are much smaller than the legs, and it's been 2,000 years, give or take, 1,500 years since the, the fall of the Roman Empire. So the flatness of the feet cannot represent that amount of time. But what I did is I counted up the amount of space that is given in the description of each part of the image. So from verses 32 and 33, that you can see on the screen there, which is the dream itself, where Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. And then he explains it then in verses 38 down to verse 43. Now, when you count up the number of words in the original Aramaic that Daniel chapter 2 was written in, we, we, we count up all these words. There are 107 total words in Aramaic. And what I've marked on the screen there, you can see in uh, yellow here, in verse 32 and 38, we have the description of Babylon. The head of image was of fine gold. You, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And the number of words in the Aramaic is the shortest. And if we take the beginning of this image as the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in 605 BC, it was a very short empire in contrast to the other ones. Uh, Persia was, was longer. So we have the, the white here. It's chest and arms of silver, another kingdom inferior. There's more words in the Aramaic. Not a lot more, but the empire of Medo-Persia was somewhat longer than the empire of Babylon. Greece was a little bit longer. So here in this kind of orangey color, it's middle and thighs of bronze, and then this longer description here of Greece, that's a little bit longer. And that is roughly proportionate too to the amount of time longer that Greece was an empire than either Persia or Babylon. And then we come to Rome, and that was much longer again hundreds of years longer than any of these other empires. So we see in verse 33, it's legs of iron, but we get this long description here in verse 40. This whole verse given over to Rome because it was a much longer empire. But then we come to the feet and the toes. Feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And then we have three long verses 
with a description of the feet and toes. There is much, much more space given to the feet and toes than any other part of the image. In fact, if we put all the other parts of the image together, the feet and toes are given more space than them all put together. So we've got the statistics down here. Sorry, there's a little bit of math here. We have 107 total words. 63 of those words describe the feet and toes, which comes out to 58.88%. So using that as a proportional model, we can say that the feet and toes, if we take this as how long these empires last, after the fall of Rome in 476 AD, to the modern day, has been over 1,500 years, much longer than any of these world empires. Now, there's something else that's interesting about that, and that is that when we look at uh, this similar sort of screen here, I've put the dates here, 605 BC. That is when Nebuchadnezzar he was Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon. That's where his empire began. He is told, you are the head of gold, not the Babylonian or the Assyrio-Babylonian empire itself, which started much uh, before this, but you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So we start in 605 BC. And what happens is when we uh, take 605 BC to 476 AD, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the head down to the legs, and then we look at the period of time after the fall of the Roman Empire, when all those barbarians came and sacked the city and Rome was divided up eventually into the nations of Western Europe. The amount of time, and uh, you notice there that um, I put this to 2018. I, I made this slide in 2018, a couple of years ago. So sorry about that. Should have changed it for this presentation. But what's interesting is, it comes out to the exact same amount in 2024, 58.88%. Yeah, 58.88%, it'll match that in 2024. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to predict dates here or anything, I'm not, gonna try, I'm not trying to predict when the stone will smite the image upon the feet. Uh, these things are only estimates. I may have got my math slightly wrong, I don't know. I may have counted the, the words slightly wrong or of course there are different manuscripts and so forth. So don't take 2024 as any significant date in and of itself. But just to give you a ballpark that we're, we're in the sort of right proportion that we can see this image as representing world history without this gap of 2000 years and this little seven year period at the end, which is the futuristic interpretation of Revelation. What I believe that the book of Daniel, uh, the, sorry, the book of Revelation is doing is carrying on where Daniel left off and giving us the details of the bottom half, the bottom part of the legs, because of course Revelation was written when the Roman Empire was still standing. So say down from the knees and then all the way down through the feet to the, the time when the stone smites the image. So Revelation carries on the story and gives us the details of what's going to happen, especially in the feet part of this image, lasting from the, the time when Revelation was written in the first century for the next 2,000 years until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that sets the scene then, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, a continuation of where Daniel left off.
what I want to have a look at in this session is what the opening words of Revelation tell us about two important things. First of all, how the book was written, how the book came to us. And John is going to talk about how he bore witness, and we're going to see the importance of that language. And then what our duty is as readers, how are we meant to read this book? And we're going to see that this book is really a book of uh, book of uh, exhortation. So let's first of all think about the writing of the book of Revelation. Here are the opening words again, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says at the end of verse one there that he sent to his angel, to his servant John. Now you'll see the, the process of um, dissemination of this revelation. So God gave it to Jesus, who gave it to the angel, who gave it to John, who gives it to us. So there's, there's this chain of, of revelation. And then it says in verse two that John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John, we're told, was an eyewitness. And this is a very important theme in the New Testament, something perhaps we don't talk about a lot, that the, the apostles were eyewitnesses and their testimony, when they wrote the gospel message, for instance, the, the gospel records, they were writing those as eyewitness testimony statements. And John is doing the same here in the book of Revelation. So let's have a look at this in a little bit more detail because the, the language here that John uses there in verses one and two is language that he's used before in his gospel record as one of those eyewitnesses. So we can go back here to the passage commonly called the comforter passage in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus was in the upper room with his apostles, declaring to them things which are going to prepare them for his death, his resurrection, and when he ascends to heaven, and their responsibility now to bear witness to who he is, that they were going to be left on earth while he's in heaven to tell everybody about him. So that language about bearing witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ, look at what John says, or what John records of what Jesus says to him and the other apostles in John chapter 15, verse 26. He says, when the helper or the comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We see a, a similar chain of, of revelation here, don't we? We have the, the father who sent his son, and now he's going to send this spirit of truth, which, as I'm going to suggest in a moment, Will, is um, actually an angel. This comforter, this helper, is angelic guidance that was given to the apostles. And he will bear witness about me. So God tells things to Jesus, who tells things to this angel, who tells things to the apostles in verse 27. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now we can go a little bit further in the, the comforter passage or the helper passages into the next chapter in John chapter 16. It says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. That's what we read about in Revelation 1. God told Jesus, who told the angels. So he's not speaking on his own authority. He will declare to you 
things that are to come. Notice the comparison here with Revelation 1. The things that God gave to him to show to his servants, the things which must soon to take place, or the things which are to come, which is a better translation than what we have there. Uh, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that then becomes the theme of what Jesus says about this comforter or this helper, which I believe was an angel. He was going to deliver the revelation of who Jesus is to the apostles, and then the apostles were to bear witness of that message to others and write it down in the gospel records, in the letters of Paul and the other apostles, and in the book of Revelation. Now, this context in the Comforter passages has a number of other connections with the book of Revelation. Take this chapter, for instance, chapter 16, and look at the very beginning of the chapter, and then at the very end of the chapter. It says here in the first verse of John 16, I, Jesus, have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So what Jesus is warning his apostles here is of the danger of apostasy, because that's what a falling away is. He doesn't want them to fall into apostasy, to depart from the truth, which is one of the themes that runs through Revelation. So that's exactly what we do see. We do see a falling away from truth. So it's as if these passages in John are preparing us for what is to come in the book of Revelation. Verse 2 says that they, the Jews, will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that, that whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So Jesus warns his apostles here of impending persecution. In this context, from the Jews in the first century, and later on, it would be the Romans who would bring about persecution. And that is another theme of Revelation. It was written, we can see there's, there's various hints that Revelation was written during a period of persecution. Some people think it was in the reign of Nero in the, in the 60s AD, others that was later on in 96 AD. Um, it's not vitally important that we understand when the Revelation was written. Although some people think that because it was written in the time of Nero, that it refers to AD 70. But uh, that is very tenuous when we look at uh, what the Book of Revelation says. There are connections with the Oliver Prophecy, and uh, we'll probably get into those later on, particularly in the Seals of Judgment in Chapter 6. But to say that the Book of Revelation is all about the, uh, the events of AD 70 just misses the whole point of the book. And that, that is what is called, commonly called the preterist uh, interpretation of Revelation. But whatever period of persecution, persecution it was, Jesus is preparing his apostles here for that time. So we start with the Jewish persecution and evolve into the Roman persecution. And so at the end of the chapter, John chapter 16, this is right at the end of his uh, discourse on the, the comforter. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, those two last phrases or sentences that John records there are taken up in the book of Revelation. The word tribulation, for instance, is a key word in Revelation. Again, described in this persecution and the, the suffering and the pressure that the 
uh, true believers are under in the face of those who have fallen away from the truth and persecute them. So they're going to have tribulation. Revelation talks about that. And then this idea of overcoming, I've overcome the world. That's exactly the same word that's used in each of the seven letters that Jesus writes to the Ecclesias in, in Revelation chapters two and three. At the end of every letter, he says, to you who overcome, I will give some sort of blessing. So Revelation then picks up on where uh, things are left off in these comforter passages. So that's the importance of the writing of Revelation. It is John bearing witness to what he heard from Jesus, what he saw Jesus do, what he heard Jesus say, and what he warned the apostles about concerning tribulation and persecution and apostasy. So that sets the scene then for what Revelation is going to talk about. Now, what about reading Revelation? What, what's the responsibility that we have for reading the book? Because what John goes on to say is that there is a blessing associated with reading this book of Revelation. It's intriguing that there's a blessing that uh, comes with it. So that's in verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So we ought to read the book of Revelation. We're blessed if we do this, if we read it, and if we hear it with this humble attitude of mind, and if we keep what is written in it. Now that language that John uses in, in, in verse three there is not actually a quotation from the Old Testament, but it does allude to a key number of lessons or principles that comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. Now there are a, a number of connections between Revelation and Deuteronomy. This is the first one. And our minds now should go to what does Moses declare to the people in Deuteronomy? Because what is the book of Deuteronomy? The book of Deuteronomy is a testimony. It's, uh, it, it's almost like um, Moses is doing exactly what the apostle John is doing in Revelation. He is giving a witness to the people, a witness statement in the form of a covenant. That's what the book of, of Deuteronomy is all about. And um, a couple of chapters after chapter 29 here, over I think in chapter 31, it talks about the, uh, the importance of the witness, that this, these words are a witness to you and a witness against you, lest you fall away. It talks about that in, in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And so, the, the book of Deuteronomy was then placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a witness to the people. So it, it connects completely with what John is saying in these first couple of verses. And chapter 29 picks up the, uh, the story here. Just before we get to that, this idea that we have here in verse, um, verse 3 about reading and listening and keeping uh, those are key ideas in Deuteronomy. But the fundamental lesson of Deuteronomy is listen and do. It's all Moses wants the, the children of Israel to understand. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to this witness statement that I'm giving to you and keep the covenant. Well, that's what uh, the book of Revelation is about as well. So in chapter 29, here's some interesting language here. It says 
in uh, the beginning of the chapter, verse 2, Moses summoned all Israel. And he's going to deliver this witness statement now to them. He said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. They were eyewitnesses of what happened. Verse 3, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. So there's an emphasis here on them seeing things, seeing signs and great wonders. Well, that's what we have in the book of Revelation as well. There are signs and great wonders continually outpoured in this book. But notice what then it, what it says in verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So what happened to the generation that walked through the wilderness is that they were blind to what had been revealed to them. Or rather, it hadn't been revealed to them, really, because it was like they had they were given a box and they hadn't lifted the lid off the box and seen what was hidden inside. And that's what Deuteronomy chapter 29 is saying. That wilderness generation hadn't had those hidden things revealed to them. You haven't been given a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Well, Revelation says now you do have eyes to uh, see, heart to understand, ears to hear. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 29, it then goes on to say in verse, uh, this is the last verse of the chapter, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what Moses tells them in this chapter, in which he warns them about falling away, is that now things have been revealed to you, that you might keep this law. There are still secret things that belong to God, but he's chosen to reveal certain of those secret things. And that's the blessing then that comes with the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. So reading the book of Revelation and seeking to understand it, listening to it in that humble attitude of mind, brings with it a blessing. Now, have a look at what uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 13. We had a look at this in our first session. This is in that chapter, which is all about the, uh, the this, this whole list of parables that Jesus gives. And the, 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 uh, the disciples ask Jesus, well, why are you speaking in parables? And Jesus tells them, I'm speaking in parables to hide things from those who are the wise and understanding. So let's just read this whole section. Verse 10, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So your eyes have been enlightened, but to them it has not been given. But to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they cannot barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, as they see with their eyes hear with the ears and understand with the heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see your ears, for they hear. 
For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so again, to the apostles was given the privilege of being able to witness the hidden things of God revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his teaching, and they wrote those things down. And that's what we have in, in the gospel records, and that's what we have in the book of Revelation. We are blessed to be able to see. And this contrasts with what we had a look in our last session with the wise and understanding people of Babylon who couldn't see, couldn't hear, couldn't understand. But Daniel and those who listen to his interpretation of the prophecy are blessed to be able to understand. They, they know what direction this world is heading in. And our eyes have been enlightened. By reading the book of Revelation, we can see what is to come. We can see where we stand in world history. We know what is around the corner. And that brings with it, of course, a wonderful blessing. One of the important factors in interpreting the book of Revelation is to understand the setting or the context in which it is written. And very early on, starting in verse 4, we learn that, already starting before that, because in verse 3, he talks about those who read this book. This, this is a message to people who read and understand this book, those who have had their eyes open to, to understand. And then in verse 4, John introduces us to the, the context of who he is writing to. He is writing to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the setting of this is that the readership are members of the Ecclesia. So we read in verse 4, John to the seven churches or the seven Ecclesias that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now it's very, very important for us to understand this context. This book was not written, for instance, to the Jews. It was not written to the Jews, particularly in Jerusalem. Neither was it written to ecclesias in Jerusalem. Now, the reason why that's important is because of some people's idea that this book is all to do with the events surrounding AD 70 and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the Romans taken captive, the Jews, and so forth. And so some people will tell you that's the setting of Revelation. This is the, the preterist interpretation. But if that was the case, then why wasn't this book, which contains within it a warning, contains within it a blessing for those who read, why wasn't it written to at least the ecclesia in Jerusalem? alone the Jews in Jerusalem, but it wasn't. It was written to the seven ecclesias that are in Asia, in modern-day Turkey hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Why, why would they be given a warning that doesn't directly apply to them? It's a good question. Rather, it's written to the seven ecclesias in Asia because it's to do with their problems, their challenges. And this is a vital thing, really, for us to understand as we go about interpreting. We've got to get the context right. The context is an ecclesial setting, not to do with things that happen to the Jewish people. This is important when we, we think back to what it said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and the, uh, the allusion or the quotation from 
Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's image because many people when you look at Nebuchadnezzar's image say well it's all to do with the empires that ruled over the Jewish people and of course to begin with that's that's entirely correct Babylon Medo-Persia Greece and Rome did rule over the Jews but when the Jews were scattered in AD 70 we have what is called in the scriptures the times of the Gentiles and the gospel message has gone out to the Gentiles and the Ecclesia becomes more and more Gentile. First, it was very Jewish, but more and more Gentiles come into the truth. And the, the context of who God works with moves from the Jews who have gone into dispersion now for 2,000 years and moves to the, to the Gentiles who are going to be grafted into the olive tree of Israel before Israel is brought back in in the last days. We understand this from passages like Romans chapter 11. Now, the book of Revelation concerns the times of the Gentiles, where the, the focus of Nebuchadnezzar's image switches from the Jewish world to the Gentile world, and how the, the Roman Empire, followed on from the Roman Empire, persecuted not the Jews, but members of the, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, persecuted the Ecclesia. Now, just to add to this point, look at the language that John uses there in verse 4. He writes to the seven Ecclesias and says, grace to you and peace. Now, that language is really interesting because when you do a concordance search of those two words used together, grace and peace, you'll find, I think this is true, that the only time that it's used in the New Testament like this, this phraseology, is in introductions to letters that Paul and the other apostles wrote to the Ecclesias. So for instance, there's one on the screen there, Romans chapter one, verse seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly the same expression that John uses in opening up what we might like to call an epistle. We don't normally call Revelation an epistle. We, we normally call, you know, we have the first four books of the New Testament, which are the gospel records, and we have the book of Acts. And then we have all the letters from Romans to Jude, and then we commonly call the book of Revelation, then the book of prophecy tagged on at the end. But really, the book of Revelation is an epistle, a very, very long epistle. But the fact that John introduces this book in exact same way there as Romans, and also 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Philemon, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 John, they all use this greeting to their readers. And I think that's important. This, again, is a message to the ecclesial world about issues that they are going to have to deal with. This is not to allude to a, a book that has been written a few years ago. This is not the, apop the apocalypse for every man. And this is not a, a message for the Jewish people in AD 70. It is a message for the ecclesia and the threats that would come into their environment. The, the warning that they would fall away from the truth and enter into apostasy. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Now let's have a look at some of the other language there in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
Now that's uh, interesting language. All of Revelation contains really, really fascinating language. Why, why does it specifically use these terms here? Him who is and who was and who is to come. Well, what's interesting about that is that contained within that phrase are three Old Testament quotations. One from Genesis, one from Joshua, and one from Exodus. Now, again, just as we had in the first verse with, you know, very short phrases used as quotations, you might question whether the word is here really is a quotation of the word is in Genesis 28. I mean, there's hundreds of times that the word is is found. And the same with was and is to come. What credence can we give to the idea that they're actual quotations from Genesis, Joshua, and Exodus? Well, this is what uh, Arthur Gibson put in his article in the 1977 testimony and uh when i first looked at this i was skeptical skeptical and thought well how on earth can this be but when we look at the context we can see that these chapters from genesis joshua and exodus fit in perfectly with the context of the book of revelation and even if they're not valid quotations this is surely what John is alluding to in introducing to us this ecclesial setting. So in Genesis chapter 28, this is the chapter in which Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau, and he is given the same promise that was given to his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham. And it says there in verse 15, God says to him, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So here is God's promise to be with Jacob. It's when Jacob has this dream of the, the staircase going up to heaven, and he awoke from his sleep in verse 16 and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not, not know it. So he realizes this is a place of the presence of God. Yahweh is in this place. All right, well, let's leave that aside for a moment and look at the, the word was. And look at the similarity in language here in Joshua chapter 1. This is the time when Joshua is called to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And he's promised here in verse 5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. You notice I've underlined there in all three of these passages, this phrase, with you. This is God's promise to be with his people. He's going to be with Jacob. He's going to be with Joshua. And then in this final quotation, he's going to be with Moses as well. This is the call of Moses, just like the call of Joshua. We have the call of Moses, where the angel in the burning bush said, but I will be. That's the equivalent of the phrase in, in Revelation is to come. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So whether it's the past, whether it's the present, or whether it's the future, God promises his people, whether they're represented here by Jacob, Joshua, or Moses, he promises his people that he was with them, he is with them, he will be with them. So we have the commonality of this phrase, with you, with you, with you. And that's what is, in effect, being told to the readers of the book of Revelation, that God is, <clears throat> God is with his people. Now, the question is, in what sense is God 
with his people. Well, let's have a look at another commonality between these three contexts. What we find is that angelic guidance is all the way through each of these passages. So let's take Genesis chapter 28 first of all. This is the passage where Jacob has this dream. It says in verse 12 that he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, when we have a look at the life of Jacob, angelic guidance is all the way through there. This is a facet of his life. And he admits at the end of his life, when he's blessing the two sons of Joseph, he proclaims the fact that the, the angel had been there, the angel of God's presence had been with him throughout his journey. So Jacob's life is all about angelic ministration, and he sees this vision of angels ascending and descending, that God would be with him. God is with him through angels. We get another instance of this, for instance, in chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. He realized that uh, the ecclesia, God's camp, was presided over by angels. And in fact, Jacob himself represents the ecclesia. If you think about the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. So he represents God who gave his son, Isaac, his only begotten son who represents Jesus. And then Jacob represents the ecclesia. In fact, when Jacob is given the promise, he's told you will be a multitude of people. That word multitude is not used of Abraham or Isaac. It's the word for a congregation. It's the word commonly used for the congregation of Israel. It's the Old Testament equivalent of an ecclesia. Abraham isn't promised that. Isaac isn't promised that. Jacob has this extra promise that he will be an ecclesia. And so throughout his life, representing the ecclesia, he, uh, his life and the ecclesia is presided over by angelic ministration. Now, this is really important in the context of the book of Revelation because in this book, we suddenly have an absolute abundance of angelic activity. I can't remember what the percentage is, but uh, you just do a concordant search on the word for angel in the New Testament, and you'll see that the, the majority of occurrences of the word are used in the book of Revelation. We have them starting in chapter one, we're going right to the end. It's angels who pour out, the, who administer the judgments and uh, who declare things to John. So angels, 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 absolutely everywhere. Well, that's Jacob. What about Moses? Exodus chapter three. When Moses was given this uh, message, it was in chapter 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. It was an angel who spoke to him. And once again, we get angelic guidance all the way through the life of Moses. There's that famous passage in, in chapter 23. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. By the way, this verse here in Exodus 23, verse 20, where it says, uh, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Those are words that are echoed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room when he's talking about the comforter or the helper. 
he says in that context, it's right at the beginning of that passage in, in John chapter 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he's picking up on Exodus chapter 23. And that's one little connection there that adds to the idea that the comforter, that guidance that was going to be given to the apostles was in the form of angels. So just as it was with um, Jacob's ecclesia, just as it is now with the congregation of Israel presided over by or led by Moses, but ultimately led by angels again. And you'd also, also notice that this is all through their tribulation. Jacob's tribulation, how he had to flee from his brother Esau, he had to go into exile in Syria and then return. Angels are with him throughout that tribulation. Angels were with Moses and the children of Israel through their tribulation, through their wilderness wanderings, through their, um, their, their temptations and trials and so forth. And the same with Joshua and the trials they had to conquer the land. All pointing forward to what takes place in the book of Revelation and the, the tribulations, the challenges that uh, the ecclesia would have. But God would be with them through angelic guidance. And it was angels who would minister to their needs and that would pour out judgments upon their enemies and would enable to, them to, to conquer their enemies as Joshua conquered the people of the land. So we turn to Joshua. We get this famous passage here in Joshua chapter 5. He looked up, his, looked up and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for adversaries? He said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? So here is Joshua meeting an angel, the commander of God's army. And Joshua is being brought to understand here that he's not going to win these battles in the land of Canaan by his own strength, but through this commander of God's army, through, again, through angelic guidance. Same is true for the ecclesia. All the challenges throughout the last 2,000 years that the believers have had in the face of opposition, in the face of, of giants in the land, if you like, and the, the commander of God's army is watching over the ecclesia and leading us through all the problems that we face. Now, there's one other connection between these three passages, and it's to do with holy ground. So let's take that one in Joshua chapter 5. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Where there are angels, there is holiness. This is God's camp. Remember that passage from uh, Genesis 32. If it's God's camp and God is in that camp, his presence is there through angels, then it is a holy place. Back in the passage in Genesis 28, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. It's holy. It's a holy place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's what the ecclesia is, isn't it? The ecclesia is the house of God. And then the angel in the bush in Exodus chapter 3, he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. Same thing that was said to Joshua later, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, think about this then in context of the book of Revelation, which is written to the ecclesia, 
the ecclesia is the house of God. The ecclesia is a place that is presided over by angels. In fact, angels are the ones who are addressed in the letters to the seven ecclesias in Revelation 2 to 3. And to the angel of the ecclesia in Smyrna, right, for example. To the angel of the ecclesia in Thyatira, right. Now there's going to be a little twist in this, which we will look at in our uh, next uh, session. But for now, understand, this is what Revelation is trying to get us to look at. The way in which angels are uh, governing or ministering, really is the word, not governing, ministering to the needs of the Ecclesia. And so just to close this uh, session, have a look at this verse. What um, Jacob did, and it's pictured there on the screen, in memorializing his dream and what he's learned is he... Uh, got a pillar of stone and he anointed it with oil. You remember that uh, occasion. Now, Paul alludes to this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he's talking about the, the working of the ecclesia, how the ecclesia should be administered. We're going to talk about this, uh, in, I think, in our next session in a little bit more detail. But in that chapter where he talks about overseers and, and deacons in the ecclesia, he says in verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household or house of God. Remember what Jacob said, this is the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, a pillar. There's the reference again back to Jacob, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is what the ecclesia should be. It should be the house of God. It should be a holy place with behavior befitting the fact that this is God's house, a buttress or a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's going to be the challenge for the ecclesia. Will they keep the truth? Will they read and understand the message of this book of Revelation, which is written to the ecclesia as, a, as an epistle to encourage them to keep truth and not to fall away and turn into an apostate church and so it's interesting then in the very next verse paul says great indeed we confess is the mystery there's that key word that we looked at before the mystery of godliness he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory and it's that mystery of godliness, the, the secret that's going to be revealed in the book of Revelation, that is going to become the power of exhortation through this epistle of John to the ecclesial world. We're considering the idea that the book of Revelation is written in the form of an epistle. We have this opening salutation by John, who says, grace and peace to you, a common opening of uh, the epistles of the apostles. And he says, who this epistle is from, it's the one from the one who is, who was, and is to come, and the seven spirits before his throne, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the, the section we want to have a look at uh, in this particular video. Because in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, we get three titles 
that are given to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is delivering this message to the Ecclesia and he describes himself as, first of all, the faithful witness. Second, the firstborn of the dead. And third, the ruler of kings on earth. Now, why, do, why does Jesus use those three particular titles of himself? Faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings on earth. And first of all, think about how that encompasses the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and his whole purpose. He is, first of all, the faithful witness. He is the one who bore witness of God's purpose as he preached the gospel. So that's talking about his life on earth. He is the firstborn of the dead. He was raised from the dead. And now he sits at God's right hand, at the, the right hand of the throne of God. And that's pictured there on the screen. That's what we're going to get into in chapters four and five. We're going to see where the firstborn of the dead is now. So that describes his life at the moment in heaven. And he is the ruler of kings on earth. So that describes the time when he returns from heaven and his new life as the ruler of God's promised kingdom. So that's one way we can look at it then. The life of Jesus, whether it was his mortal life, his life now as the, the priest at God's right hand, or his life as the king upon the earth. But just as with everything in the book of Revelation, there is a lot more to it. So let's look at these three things in turn. One of the things we find is that each of these is, again, a quotation from the Old Testament. In fact, each of these titles are quoted from the same section in the Old Testament. They all come from Psalm 89. So that's a psalm that we're meant to take notice of. Revelation is pointing us back to Psalm 89 inviting us to look at the context there and figure out what the lesson is. So let's take these in turn. First of all, the faithful witness. Why is Jesus called the faithful witness? That word witness, by the way, is the word martyr. It's a word used later on in Revelation to describe those who have been martyred, as we understand the, the word commonly used. And this is a message for those who would witness to the truth. Remember what Jesus had prepared his apostles for in the upper room back in John chapter 16. He prepared them to be witnesses, to bear witness of the risen Lord. And that's exactly what the apostles did. And Jesus warned them that when they bore witness, that they would be persecuted. They would become martyrs. And many of them did. Jesus himself was a martyr. Jesus witnessed faithfully to the things of God, and he was martyred because of it. He was put to death. So, with that in mind, let's delve a little bit deeper. Now, interesting thing about this is it follows on from verse 2 about John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ. John himself, of course, was a faithful witness. And he's talking about us that need to be faithful witnesses and the fact that we will be persecuted if we do that. Jesus is the prime example then of someone who faithfully witnessed to the truth. Now, as I said, these titles of Christ all come from Psalm 89. So let's have a look, first of all, at these verses here, which 
the two verses in question. It's a long psalm. It's about 40 or so verses long. And towards the end of the psalm, we have these two verses. Prophetical of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, I will make him the firstborn. So that's the firstborn of the dead that's quoted in Revelation 1 verse 5. The highest of the kings of the earth. That's the third title that's used in Revelation 1. And then in verse 37, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So all of this language then comes from Psalm 89. So what are we meant to grasp then from Psalm 89? Why is Revelation pointing us back to this particular section of scripture? Well, one of the reasons is to emphasize this idea of faithfulness. This is a word that is used. It's, like, it's a key word in the psalm. So here are some of the occurrences of that word. It begins in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. So that is the purpose of the psalm. What the psalmist wants to do is to let everybody know about God's faithfulness. In other words, he's witnessing to the faithfulness of God. He carries on in verse 2. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Verse 24, my faithfulness, my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Verse 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love, or be false to my faithfulness. Faithfulness is a key attribute of God. Of course it is. He is faithful. In fact, when we look at the name of God, the character of God, the glory of God described to Moses upon the mountain, that famous passage, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in uh, steadfast love and faithfulness. Faithfulness, in the King James translated as truth, but faithfulness is a much better word to translate the word, is the very core of who God is. Which, in the context of the book of Revelation, should be absolutely wonderful for the saints to realize. A comfort for them. This is part of the, the comfort, the help that God gives through angelic ministration. He is faithful to his household. He loves them. He cares for them. He's made a covenant with them. And he will be faithful to them, faithful to the end, faithful to them throughout all of their troubles. So what a comfort for us, brothers and sisters. What a comfort for our brothers and sisters who have gone through the, the tribulations described in the book of Revelation. But through it all, God would be faithful to them and the Lord Jesus Christ would be faithful to them as well. So John, in, in taking us back to this psalm, but the beginning of Revelation provides that necessary comfort for us as he's going to introduce to us the, uh, the problems that would plague the Ecclesia throughout history. Now, there's another thing here. Remember, we've been talking about ministry in the Ecclesia and the fact that ultimately the saints are going to take over the administration of the kingdom of God. They're going to take over the work of the angels. And our lives now in the house of God are to prepare us for that role in the future. Now, that's interesting because Jesus touches on this idea of faithfulness in relation to what we're doing now. So in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, who then is the faithful and wise servant 
whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So we need to be faithful servants in the house. We need to be faithful witnesses following in the uh, following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ faithful to our calling faithful ministering to the needs of the household and then we come into the next chapter in Matthew chapter 25 and the parable of the talents and how the the master gave to his servants talents which we can say would be our opportunities, the resources, the time that's been afforded to us. What are we doing with these things in the household of God right now? Are we being faithful servants? So it says, for instance, in the middle of this parable, he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. He's used his talents well. So verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So what that passage tells us is that our faithfulness now, whether we are bearing witness to the things of God and the things of our Lord by our ministry in the ecclesia, our faithfulness to the truth of God's word, if we're doing that now, it's preparing us to take over the work of the angels in the kingdom of God. We've been faithful over a little, we will be set over much. The responsibilities that we'll have in the kingdom of God, of course, are going to be massive, which will help the Lord Jesus Christ rule in the kingdom of God. And that's really what the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was all about. It was to establish the principles of faithful service now to prepare us for the kingdom. That's why he said, repent. The very first words he spoke in his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was preparing his disciples, disciplining his disciples, that they might sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he does the same for us. That, what, that's what his life as the faithful witness was to do, to uh, prepare his servants. And now he is the firstborn from the dead. Now he is in heaven presiding over the ecclesia as our heavenly Lord, being faithful to us now in charge of the angels that help us in our ministry and help us in our uh, preparing ourselves, preparing our hearts and minds for the kingdom of God. So we think of that idea now, that right now we are um, under the govern government of Jesus in that sense, um, preparing ourselves for the time when we will be part of that government government in the kingdom of God. So let's think then about uh, Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. Now we look at Psalm 89, we saw how it's quotes, uh, Revelation quotes Psalm 89. Well, the author of Psalm 89 is concerned about death. The end of the psalm says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? So the context of Psalm 89 seems to be that this person is under threat of death and they realize their time is short and they're worried about it. But of course, the message is that our Lord has overcome the world that's what he said at the end of john chapter 16 in the world you shall have tribulation but be of good cheer i have overcome the world i have conquered 
death. This is going to be the message of Revelation chapter 1 at the end. We have a vision of the Son of Man who has the keys of hell and death. He solved the problem. And that's another wonderful, comforting message for the readers of the book of Revelation. No matter what tribulation we go through, no matter how short our lives might seem, however much we might fear death and fear becoming a martyr, the firstborn from the dead has assured our salvation. So once again, we have the, the comfort of this title of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can think of another couple of passages where Jesus is described as the firstborn from the dead. This is interesting. Hebrews chapter one, we talked a lot about angels. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God, uh, let all God's angels worship him. So the firstborn from the dead, described in the first half of that verse, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and now all God's angels worship him. He presides, he um, leads the angels. And in the book of Revelation, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in charge of the angels and sending them out into the world with these judgments against those who come against the household of faith. Or we could go to Colossians chapter 1, where it talks about Jesus, who is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the ecclesia. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Once again, we see that this idea of him being the firstborn means he has been exalted to a position of leadership, the head of the body head of the ecclesia and that's his position now in heaven that's why he's positioned by the throne of god in the book of revelation because he's been raised to this position of authority having charge over the angels presiding over the household of faith and that brings with it uh, both a responsibility to be faithful members of that household and the comfort that our lord is with us now this aspect of rulership this aspect of preparing ourselves to uh, administer rule in the coming kingdom of God, while at the same time ruling uh, the household of God right now. This theme continues in uh, the final one of those titles, that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Now, that is one of the central aspects, again, of this psalm that Revelation is pointing us back to. Psalm 89 is a psalm of David about David and about the rulership of David and about the covenant of David and about the surety of that covenant. So verse 3 says, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. You see here the, the faithfulness of God in making this covenant with David, and he will keep his covenant. Verse 36, his offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Lord, where is your steadfast love of all, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? So when we think of the throne of David, we think of the promise, the eternal covenant that God made with David and how it points forward to the kingdom of God, how Jesus is the seed of David. He will sit on the throne of David and David himself to be able to see his 
uh, offspring, as he was promised. David needs to be raised from the dead and be part of that ruling class in the kingdom of God. That's what this psalm is trying to encourage us to look forward to. That's why we're, we're taken back to Psalm 89, to consider the faithfulness of God, to consider the, uh, the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ and an eternal kingdom. It's, it's really the beginning of the series of visions that Revelation gives us. These little snapshot visions that we have throughout Revelation. That in the midst of this tribulation, we can look forward to these things. And so that throne room that uh, becomes the, the arena of the outpouring of the judgments of God, the, the throne room of, of God sitting on the throne, of Jesus with him, and of those who are sat around the throne, like the seven spirits, it's all helping us establish that vision of the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ, helping focus our minds on the end goal, but what going through this tribulation ultimately will lead to is God faithfully keeping his covenant and establishing the seed of David on the throne of God. So let's end this session then with uh, one more passage in Isaiah chapter 55. Jesus in Revelation is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I kind of like this painting. It's a little bit weird. We've got soldiers and so forth um, bowing or paying homage to Jesus. But it points forward to the fact that all the rulers, all the, the powerful of this world, will one day throw their crowns at the feet of God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what the, the Roman soldiers or whoever else might have done to the saints throughout the ages, the one who conquers them ultimately, will conquer them for us. The, the commander of God's army, the, the, the greater Joshua and the, the angel, uh, the, the comforter, will defeat all those enemies in the promised land and establish the kingdom of God. So Isaiah chapter 55 says, Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander for the peoples. Doesn't that really encapsulate what Revelation chapter 1 is telling us? That Jesus is the faithful witness, the one who will establish the, the, the principles of God as the law of God goes out from Jerusalem. That's what it means to be a faithful witness to establish truth and righteousness in the earth. He is also the firstborn from the dead. This is an everlasting covenant. David himself needs to be raised from the dead. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, as David was a leader and commander for the peoples. So in this video, we're going to finish the first little section, the introduction to Revelation, which runs from verses 1 to 6. We've seen that in the first three verses, John introduces the importance of the way in which the book was written, that it was written using Old Testament quotations. It was written as a witness that John, as an apostle, was witnessing to the truth, and that we as readers have a responsibility to listen. Listen to the Bible echoes. Listen to the way in which Revelation is written and piece together what it means for us as a book of exhortation. But then in the next few verses, verses four to six, we really learn that this is an epistle. It's introduced in that sort of 
way in which Paul and the other apostles often introduce their epistles with grace and peace directed towards the ecclesial world. And we looked in our last video at how this book or this epistle comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is described in three ways as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the, uh, the ruler of the kings of the world. Now, in the last little section here, we come back to those who are the recipients of this epistle, that we have been called to be related to the Lord Jesus Christ because we are going to share the responsibility in the kingdom of God of ruling with him. So in verse five, where we get those three titles of Jesus, at the end of that verse, it says that it, it was written to those who have been freed or as in some manuscripts and in some translations, washed from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we've been called to join the one who is the faithful witness in witnessing and in, as we're gonna see, living out the principles described in those three titles of Christ. Now that language there at the end of verse five, that we've been freed or washed from our sins is another quotation. It's a quotation from Psalm 51. And verse two, which says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And we know what Psalm 51 is about. It's about the confession of David, the plea for forgiveness, the plea for restoration that had occurred after he had sinned with Bathsheba. We looked in our last video at how Revelation points us back to the promises to David using Psalm 89 and a reminder of those sure, the sure steadfast love that God had for David. And, and this is emphasized really here, isn't it? That despite our sin, God is faithful. Jesus is faithful to us. That despite our sin, he's still willing to take us out of the land of sin and death and to bring us into his purpose. David himself had experienced this. And so that sets the scene of who are the recipients of this letter, those who have responded to the call of the gospel, which should be pretty obvious to us, and those who have gone through the same experience that David went through. So what Revelation is pointing us to is the fact that we've left the land of sin and death. We've left Egypt. So that's verse five, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Reminder here of leaving Egypt, leaving the land, which is everything to do with what we're going to learn about the false system in the, in the rest of Revelation, that that false system is spiritually a land of Egypt. And we need to have left that system. And then in verse six, it carries on by saying that having been freed from Egypt, God has made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God has made us to become kings and priests in his kingdom. That's the call of Israel in the Old Testament, now applied to our call in this new context of the book of Revelation. And as we're going to see, the reason I got the arrow there pointing to Mount Sinai is because that is where our mind should go to when we read these words in verse 6. He's made us a kingdom and priest, or a kingdom of priests, or kings and priests. That was the reason why God freed Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Not, not just for the sake of salvation, but he had, of course, a purpose with Israel, that they should be rulers 
and priests. And as we've seen previously in the series, that's really what we've been called to now, uh, not just in the kingdom of God. This is not just looking forward to the time when we shall help the Lord Jesus Christ rule in the kingdom of God, but it's what we're practicing now in the ecclesial setting. We're meant to be kings, kings of those who rule, kings of those who govern, kings of those who have authority. What do we do with the authority that we've been given? Do we humbly shepherd the flock? Or do we go down the route of those who fell into apostasy and lorded it over the flock and produced the false Christian system that the book of Revelation outlines? We've also called to be priests. Priests were the teachers of the law. We have been called to do that right now, of course, as faithful witnesses to the truth. Are we keeping that truth? Are we being faithful to the word of God? So all wrapped up in this kingdom of priest language is the, the responsibility we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Revelation really emphasizes this for us. We've got to understand what that responsibility is, understand what that role is for us now, lest we fall away. And that's, of course, exactly what did happen, unfortunately, to the early ecclesia. Now, that language, as we said, comes from uh, the book of Exodus. But before we get to that, have a look at how verse 5 here at the end and then into verse 6 matches the three titles of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of verse 5. So we have been freed from our sins by his blood. And that relates to the fact that Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one who was martyred. That's the idea behind the word witness. He was faithful to the word of God. And because he was faithful to it, because he was a, as it were, a priest teaching and bearing witness, testifying to the things of God, those who were the apostasy in the days of Jesus martyred him. They put him to death. And it's through that death, because he loved us, because he was willing to give up his life, that that brings about our freedom uh, from our sins by his blood. So that's how those two things relate. Now, the word kingdom there, of course, relates to that last title in verse 5, that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. He is our head. He is the, the commander of the Lord's army. He is the king, and we are the princes. Uh, the apostles that Jesus called were going to sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to join in that responsibility in the kingdom of God as helping the Lord Jesus Christ establish the rule of God on earth. So you can see the correlation there. And then the, the idea of us being priests relates to Jesus being the firstborn of the dead. Having been raised from the dead, he becomes a priest after the order of Melchizedek with his eternal priesthood as he sits on the right hand of God. And we've seen previously the relationship between Jesus being the firstborn of the dead and his exalted position to be able to be that faithful priest. And so that's how that uh, other aspect of our role relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything all neatly then ties together. So then let's have a look at this quotation from Exodus. So that phraseology, a kingdom of priests, comes right out of this chapter, Exodus chapter 19, the time when the children of Israel, having been freed from the bondage of sin and death, were brought to Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai, of course, that the voice of God was heard from heaven, and he established this people as his people 
as this kingdom of priests and the authority of God was given through Moses going up into the mountain and receiving the law of God by which now the children of Israel should govern their lives. So verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is one very clear example of the way in which Revelation uses the Old Testament. It's not saying that this epistle of Revelation is being written to the wilderness generation. I mean, that, that would be ridiculous. But what Revelation is doing is it's taking the principle out of Exodus 19 and now applying it in the context of the ecclesia. That just as Israel was a, a kingdom of priests, so we have been called to be a kingdom of priests as well. And we've been given that authority and we've been given the law that we're, be, we're to be faithful to. And a covenant, of course, was made with the children of Israel at this time. And God has made a covenant with us, the new covenant. And we've been called to witness to the truth and uh, keep it uh, in the, the sanctuary of God's house and not fall away from that. Now, why in particular are we brought to Exodus chapter 19? Well, there's a number of connections between what's going on here in the book of Revelation, but let's just pick out uh, one aspect here. Because if we go on later in, in chapter 19, we see that the, the presence of God was felt and seen and heard on Mount Sinai, where the voice of God boomed out, and the people, of course, were afraid at that time. And look at the language and see how it's brought out in the book of Revelation. So verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast and all the people in the camp trembled. They're being made aware. They're being alerted to the fact that they are in the presence of God. This is the very mountain where God had first revealed his purpose to Moses, where he said, I will be with you. An aspect of God's presence with his people that uh, is alluded to or quoted to earlier in uh, verse 4 of Revelation, as we've seen in a previous video. This was holy ground. They are to be a holy people. God is now building up his household of faith. Now, Revelation chapter 4, a little bit later on, and we'll, we'll look at this in more detail when we get to that chapter, picks up on the language of Sinai. This is the, the vision of the throne room where God sits on his throne and Jesus is there with him on that throne. And the, the seven spirits are around the throne. And it's a, a picture of the manifestation of the, the glory and the, the dominion and the, the rulership of God. And so just like at Sinai, same thing. Here we have this language in Revelation 4. After this, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And a first voice, just as the, the voice of God came from heaven at Sinai, uh, the voice I heard speaking was to me like a trumpet. That's what it sounded like to John. And then it, we go on to verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So the scene is set. We have established that we need to listen to that voice of God. That's how the book of Revelation opens up. We need to read and listen and keep what the word of God is telling us in this book. That is the bottom line. 
And if we go away from that principle, if we turn our ears away, as the children of Israel did in the wilderness, as they fell into apostasy, as they went back into Egypt, spiritually speaking, so we will do so if we don't keep listening and reading and heeding the words of this epistle that John is writing to the Ecclesias. And sadly, as we're going to learn in the book of Revelation, what was prophesied came to pass and the the Ecclesia turned into the church that did turn itself back spiritually into Egypt. We saw in our last video how we have been called to become a kingdom of priests. And what Revelation does, and it's going to do it again in the, the next verse that we're going to look at in verse 7, is it tells us the end of the story right at the beginning of the book. That's why verse 6 ends with Amen, has made us kings and priests, Amen. And then verse 7 talks about Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven and bringing judgment upon the world. And it ends again with the word Amen. Even so, Amen. And a little echo there of uh, Revelation chapter 22 and the end of the book, which says, Even so come, Lord Jesus, Amen. And the, the, the principle here really is that we can say amen right at the beginning. It's, it's talking about the surety of God's purpose. Revelation does this all the way through. It starts with the, the end in mind, and it gives us these little snapshot visions of, of future glory to encourage the saints, whatever time period they're going through in history, that God will send his son to judge this world in righteousness and will set up the kingdom of God. So in this video, let's have a look at the first little phrase here in chapter 1 and verse 7. The verse reads, Behold, he is coming, talking of course about the Lord Jesus Christ, with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Now, it's interesting language that Revelation uses here. It could have just said, Behold, he will return. He will be that stone that smites the image upon the feet. But it says, He is coming with clouds. Now, as is usual in Revelation, and as is our study, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And this time, it's from Daniel chapter 7. I saw on the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, what this does is that anticipates what John is going to talk about when he sees one like the son of man, starting there in verse 13. And it's a, a long description with much symbolic language about who Daniel refers to here. And, and just as Revelation does in general, it's going to build out on what Daniel says and explain who this son of man is. So we get a little um, inkling into what John is going to talk about a little later on then. Now, why does he tell us to go back to Daniel chapter 7? Now, this is one of the most commonly quoted sections of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And of course, we would expect that. The book of Revelation contains a lot of passages, descriptions of the fourth beast of the prophecy of Daniel, which is, of course, described in chapter 7. And we have this parallel, don't we, between Daniel chapter 2, which was quoted from in the very first verse of Revelation, and now we get this quotation from the parallel chapter in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel now sees the same four world empires represented by beasts. 
You might ask yourself the question, why does Daniel describe the kingdom of men in these two very different ways? Uh, this mighty image of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and then as beasts. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about the structure of the book of Daniel, particularly the first seven chapters. From, uh, from chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7, it's, it's its own section in Daniel. It's written in Aramaic. The rest of it's written in Hebrew, but this section is written in Aramaic. And we see that there's a structure to from chapter 2 to chapter 7. And there's this parallelism which forms a chiasmus where chapter 2 matches chapter 7. So we have the image in chapter 2, the image of the four world empires, but then we have the same four world empires now described as four beasts. So there's the first parallel. Now, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, in his great pride, decides to make an image all of gold. He doesn't like the fact that he's only the head of gold, so he makes this image all of gold. And of course, that's the chapter where he commands everyone to bow down to this idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to, and he throws them into the burning, fiery furnace, but they're rescued out of it. Now, there's a parallel with that in Daniel chapter 6. Just before the vision of the beasts, we have a foreshadowing, if you like, of that prophecy in Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel now is thrown into a den of lions, which represents the first of those empires. So we see, and he was rescued out of that as well. So we see a parallel between chapter 3, persecution of true believers, but their rescue out of it, and then chapter 6, persecution of true believers, rescued out of it. And no matter whether you see the kingdom of men as a great image, chapters 2 and 3, or as beasts, chapter 6 and 7, God will rescue his people out of their clutches. And Revelation, of course, builds on this. It's a book about the persecution of believers and about how God will rescue his people from the image and its beast. And then there's another parallel between chapter 4 of Daniel, which is the story about the dream of Nebuchadnezzar where he saw Babylon is this great tree and it was cut down. So it's, it's the judgment upon Babylon, the judgment upon the kingdom of men. Chapter 5 of Daniel is when that actually happened, when the Medo-Persians came and they destroyed the city of Babylon. So we see the, the judgment then upon the kingdom of men in chapters 4 and 5. And the book of Revelation builds on all of this structure. Now, this idea of an image in beasts should also remind us of the fundamental aspect of God's purpose. What's interesting about this description of the kingdom of men is that it forms something of a parody with one of the most fundamental verses in scripture. So we have an image and we have some beasts. Where else do we read of an image and beasts together? Well, on the screen there, I've put down Genesis chapter one. Before we get to that, have a look at what it says in the very next verse, chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 14, the next verse after the one that says, Behold, he comes with clouds. It says there, to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Two things come out of that verse. The fact that the Son of Man here is given dominion, it's looking forward to the time when the, the kingdom of men will finally be destroyed and replaced by the kingdom of God. The stone has smitten the image upon the feet. 
and replaced everything that this world stands for. You'll also notice a little echo there with the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Look what it says in verse 14 there, all people's nations languages should serve him. Remember what keeps coming up in Daniel chapter three, the story of the, the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar makes. He commands all people, nations, languages to bow down before that image. So we get a reversal here, the kingdom of men replaced by the kingdom of God. But what the kingdom of men does is it parodies the kingdom of God. So look at Genesis chapter one, verse 26 here, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So man was made in the image of God. In contrast to that, and as a parody of that, we have the kingdom of men described as the image of a mighty man, as if in complete defiance of the purpose of God. And then let them have dominion, which is what Daniel 7 verse 14 looks forward to, over the beasts, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the one in the image of God and the saints, will rule over this earth in that dominion and have dominion over the beasts. And that's what Daniel chapter 7 looks forward to. So it's a, it's a chapter about judgment. This is what the saints who are reading the book of Revelation, they look forward to. They're being persecuted by this fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. So this is a, a very encouraging quotation from Daniel 7 here in, in uh, Revelation, reminding the saints that no matter what the fourth beast does, the Son of Man shall have the ultimate victory. And so we, we've got a few verses there on the screen about the, the general theme that runs through Daniel 7, that of judgment. And notice the echoes here with Revelation. And uh, we're going to keep coming back to these passages as we come to those parts in Revelation that quote from these verses. So as I looked, verse 9, thrones were placed. The throne is going to become very important, especially when we get to chapters 4 and 5. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Now there's some language here that's taken up at the end of Revelation chapter 1, the one like the Son of Man. Uh, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Now these huge numbers that are around about the throne, they're expressed in Revelation 2. We see uh, God on the throne with Jesus next to him and thousands upon thousands around him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now that's going to happen in Revelation chapter 5. A book is going to be opened. A book is going to be unsealed and written in those seals or on the pages of that book or that scroll after it's unsealed are the judgments upon the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. And that's what we get in Revelation. We get this series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, the thunders. A series of seven judgments each against the fourth beast of Daniel 7. Verse 22 of Daniel 7 says, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given him uh, for the saints of the most time. The time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion, that's the dominion of the fourth beast, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. So that's where our mind should be then at the beginning of Revelation. Despite what the fourth beast is doing at this time, 
persecuting true believers, judgment is coming. The Son of Man shall come to save his people from the equivalent of Nebuchadnezzar throwing people into the fiery furnace or Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Now, one more interesting little echo here. In the New Testament now, in Matthew chapter 26, this is where, uh, this is another way in which tables are turned. And, and there's kind of a little, a, like a little parody going on here too. Uh, this is the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ before Caiaphas. Uh, we get the idea of, of the clouds here in this passage. We're in chapter 26, verse 63. Jesus remained silent when he was asked uh, about the things they were accusing him of. And the high priest said to him, I adieu you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. And notice what he says there. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. Daniel 7, verse 13, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power. That's the vision we see in Revelation. And coming on the clouds of heaven. And here Jesus goes back again to, Revel uh, to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Now, what's interesting about this particular passage is, as I said, this is the tables are going to be turned here. Here is Jesus being judged by the, the ruler of that age. But he is going to return, as he says here, to judge the ruler of the future age. Someone, I guess, who Caiaphas points forward to. Not in a Jewish concept, context, but now in a Gentile context. Now, notice in this passage here how Jesus is... Um, expressing or living up to manifesting those three titles that are given to him earlier in the uh, in verse 5 of revelation chapter 1 remember those three titles he's called the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth now the principle behind those three titles is all encapsulated in what's going on here in this context in Matthew chapter 26. First of all, Jesus here is being the faithful witness. We mentioned that word witness as the idea of being a martyr. And Jesus, when he faithfully witnessed here to the high priest, this was part of them putting him to death, making a martyr of this man who faithfully did the will of God. So Jesus here is definitely the faithful witness. Now, what about the, the firstborn from the dead? Well, of course, they're just about to kill him, aren't they? And he then will rise from the dead. But there's another aspect here. Jesus here is called the son of God, or in a, a yeah, an ironic way, the high priest uses that as, a, as a, an accusation of blasphemy. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. The idea of Jesus being the son of God comes from Psalm 2. You are my son, this day I have begotten you. And what the New Testament tells us is that it was through the resurrection of the dead that he truly becomes the son of God and the Christ, if you like. He's declared to be the Christ by his resurrection from the dead. So the aspect of Jesus being the firstborn of the dead is, is encapsulated in, in what Caiaphas says to Jesus there. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Yes, he is the Christ. And he will come and he will destroy the kingdom of men here represented by Caiaphas and later represented by the leader of the, uh, the kingdom of men, the, the future Nebuchadnezzar. 
the, the leader of the fourth beast of Daniel 7. And Jesus, having dominion over them, will be the ruler of the kings of the earth. We've been looking at verses 6 and 7 here of this snapshot vision of the end times, of the time at the end of the tribulation that uh, true believers have to endure, when they shall reign as kings and priests with the Lord Jesus Christ upon the earth, and the Lord Jesus Christ will return in clouds and judge this world in righteousness. Now, we're going to finish off verse 7 in this particular video because what verse 7 points to is something very significant that's going to happen in the last days. And that is the what we might call the reintegration or intersection of the Jewish and Gentile worlds. We know that at the time of the writing of the Revelation, the Jews have been judged by the Lord Jesus Christ because they put him to death. He's prophesied in the Olivet Prophecy that the Romans would come, and they did come in AD 70. They demolished the city and the, the temple of Jerusalem. They led captive uh, many Jews, and they were scattered for 2,000 years. And in their dispersion, it became known as the, as Jesus calls it in the Olivet Prophecy, the times or the days of the Gentiles. And at, at first, the, the early ecclesia was very Jewish, but it became more and more Gentile. The, the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles should be graft into the Jewish olive tree that they should have the hope of Israel has been realized with the, the faithful witnessing of Jesus and the apostles. And the Jews have rejected that message. They've rejected their Messiah. They've put him to death and they've been judged for it. And now it's the turn of the Gentiles. But what John says at the end of verse 7 is that the Jews will be graft in once again into their olive tree. And so that's what we get in this language which doesn't take me to tell you that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. These are very, very well-known words from very well-known prophecy in Zechariah. So behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on again. Even so, amen. We know that's taken from Zechariah chapter 12. You'll see the language straight off there about this very, very moving prophecy. When Jesus returns, he's going to save his people, the Jews, from the Golgian confederacy that's going to come down on the land. And they're going to realize that the one that they put to death 2,000 years prior is their Messiah. He is the Son of God. And they're going to mourn because of it. So there's verses 10 and 12 in Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The land shall mourn each family by itself. So as I said, a very, very moving prophecy. And the Jews from this will realize who their Messiah is. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, God has not cast away his people. For a time, the branch of, of, of the Jews was cut off from that olive tree. But in the last days, it will be graft back in and Jew and Gentile will be one together once more in the kingdom of God. That's what Zechariah looks forward to. Interesting language here. You'll see that they're weeping bitterly over him there at the end of verse 10 as one weeps over a firstborn. Because this is the firstborn. This is the son of God. The firstborn from the dead as he's introduced to us in Revelation chapter 1. And they realize that even though they killed him, he rose from the dead. 
that all this time he's been up in heaven waiting until the restoration of all things and the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem, that, that great sign of the end times and what the uh, result will be when the Jews are back in the land, which is that the Gentile nations will come down upon them and try to destroy them. And that is, <coughs> excuse me, that is exactly what is the topic of Zechariah chapter 12. It's that prophecy that begins in the first couple of verses, which saying that says that Jerusalem shall be a burdensome stone, uh, burdensome stone for all people. Sorry, my um, my voice is going a little bit. And um, how all nations then will come against Jerusalem to battle. Uh, outlined a little, in a little bit more detail over in chapter 14. So that's why, and again, we need to ask ourselves the question, why, when, when Revelation points us back to the Old Testament, that's why we're pointed back here, to remind us of part of that principle of, of judging this world in righteousness. It's to save the people of God from the oppression of their enemies. So, we read in verse 9, for instance, on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, that um, final manifestation of the, the kingdom of men, whether it's in the, the image that's going to be smitten upon the, the feet by the stone or the, the fourth beast and, and the Golgan Confederacy and, and everything coming, all the kingdom of men coming together now against Jerusalem's battle, they will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11, the verse that we missed out on the previous slide, it says that on the day, the mourning in Jerusalem, wailing that they've put this man to death, will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Well, what's the plain of Megiddo? That's what is referenced in Revelation chapter 16, and the very one of the most famous verses in the book, the reference to the battle of Armageddon, the great battle of the last day. Obviously, we're going to get to this in more detail a lot later on in this series. But that's where we read that, that God assembled them at a place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. So that's what we look forward to then in uh, the end of this little Amen section. Twice we have this word Amen in verse 6 and in verse 7. These things are so sure that we can say Amen even before they come to pass. And no matter what tribulation you go through, whether it's the tribulation of those who read Revelation initially or the tribulation of all believers throughout the ages, no matter what suffering, what persecution, what pressure they go through, we can say amen to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ shall return and judge this world in righteousness and set up the kingdom of God. And that's true, true, true too of the Jewish nation. So there's another um, echo here, this time not with the Old Testament, but with what Jesus said in the Olivet Prophecy. So just before we go to that, little brief rundown of what I think is what the Olivet Prophecy is all about. But it's, it's split more or less into two halves. The first half is about the events surrounding AD 70 and how the Roman armies would come against Jerusalem besiege it, later destroy the temple, destroy the temple, lead the Jews captive into all nations. And then what Jesus talks about in that prophecy, which is called the times of the Gentiles, is for the Jews a time of great tribulation. Not the same tribulation that we read about in Revelation. The tribulation that Revelation talks about is the tribulation of the saints, of the, uh, the Gentile ecclesia. But while they're going through their tribulation, 
the Jews are going through their tribulation, which is the, the list of curses that would come upon them outlined in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. So that's what Jesus talks about. He talks about AD 70. He talks about this introducing this period, this 2000 year long time of tribulation of the Jews as they're in dispersion, as they're persecuted in all the countries of the world, things like the Holocaust and so forth. But then he says in verse 29, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the end of the Jewish dispersion, when they've returned to the land as they did in 1948, and after they retake the city of Jerusalem in 1967, and, and they continue to be um, surrounded by antagonistic nations, ultimately by the most antagonistic of all, by the Golgian Confederacy. Jesus talks about that time here. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The political rulership will be dealt with at this time. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign. Now, notice the language here the sign of the Son of Man. By the way, that Son of Man vision that we looked at in Daniel chapter 7 is very significant because, as we saw, it's to do with judgment. Whenever you read the, the title Son of Man, more often than not, it's to do with judgment. For instance, look at John chapter 5. Jesus there is called the Son of Man. He is um, qualified to be the judge because he is the Son of Man. And it contrasts there in John chapter 5 between him being called the Son of God and the Son of Man. In fact, he's the Son of Man means that he's gone through what men and women go through. Trials and temptations. He knows what it is like. So he is suitable to judge us and to judge this world in righteousness. He has empathy and sympathy with us. So the Son of Man will appear. And all, and here's Zechariah chapter 12 again. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So it's not just John who puts these two uh, prophecies together, Daniel 7 and Zechariah chapter 12. Jesus did it originally in the Olivet Prophecy. So he will come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of the heaven to the other. So that completes this first little vision of uh, Revelation chapters, uh, chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. He gives us the end of the story. <clears throat> We're going to rule with the Lord Jesus Christ as kings and priests. He's going to come with clouds to judge this world in righteousness. And the Jews are going to realize who their Messiah is. They're going to repent. They're going to accept him as their Messiah. And that will be the, the beginning then of the time of the setting up of the kingdom of God. We've had a look in the last couple of videos at this theme that runs through the beginning of Revelation where we're given the end of the story, the time when the dispersion, dispersion of the Jews is over, the Lord Jesus Christ has returned, the time to the Gentiles is over, and Jesus has come to judge this world in righteousness, and Jew and Gentile, their destinies intersect at the return of the Jewish Messiah and, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that theme continues in verse 8 where we get the following words i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who is and who was and who is to come the almighty now you'll recognize some of the language there that we've seen previously this this title or name of god who is who was and who is to come now why is that repeated there and why do i say that this is another hint that we're looking at the 
the intersection of the destinies of Jew and Gentile. Well, the fact that it's a, a repeat from what we have back in verse 4, when we had a look at that title, which is, which was, and which is to come, um, should tell us that there's some structure to the text. And that's exactly what we find in these verses. In the first 11 verses of Revelation chapter 1, we have a chiastic structure, and that's what it looks like. And you can see that it's all directing us to this, this point in the middle, which is going to tell us that this is exactly what we're looking for in these first few verses of Revelation, the, the finality of God's purpose when Jew and Gentile come together in Christ. So verse 1, John is told that he's been given this revelation through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the angel to show to his servants. And then in verse 11, he's told to write what he sees in this book, this epistle to the ecclesial world. So there's the, the first parallel, uh, the um, one's marked A there, and then we come to B, where we get the repetition of this idea of the testimony. In fact, we get very similar language. Verse 2 says, the word of God into the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what he's showing. And that's repeated in verse 9, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So you can see the, the similar language here. Then we get this title of God, who is and who was and who is to come. That's in verse 4 and in verse 8. Uh, this parallel is a little bit less firm, but it does mention in verse 5, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. And then in verse seven, it mentions all the tribes of the earth. But we will see that there's an important emphasis here on the earth. Or we might say the land, because the word earth in scripture is a little bit ambiguous, especially in the Old Testament. When it talks about the earth and the, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, it's uh, commonly the, the Hebrew word Eretz, which is the word for the land of Israel. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's an echo here with a promise of the land of Israel, part of the Abrahamic covenant. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, this parallelism then brings us or points us to what is in the middle. And this is what a chiasm does. It points us to the, the crux of the matter, what we're meant to notice mostly in the context, which is right in the middle, which is that verse at the end of verse 5, that says that Jesus has freed us or washed us from our sins by his blood. That's what the, the first 11 verses want us to take notice of, most especially that we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a message to the redeemed. And ultimately, in the kingdom of God, the redeemed will not just be the Gentile ecclesia to whom the book of revelation was sent but it will include the jews who again will be grafted back in to their olive tree now this reminds me of what the uh, apostle paul says in the book of ephesians uh, going right back to i think our first video you mentioned this when we talked about the the idea of a mystery and the book of revelation is about the the revelation of secret hidden things a revelation of mysteries and Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel in his epistle to the Ephesians. And he says that the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews. And of course, that's why the book of Revelation is written. It's not written to the Jewish people, even though it talks about the end of the Jewish people right here in chapter one. What it's written to predominantly is the Gentile ecclesia. 
Now, if we were to go to that section in Ephesians where Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, let's just have a look at uh, a couple of verses here from Ephesians chapter 2. So we've got this verse here that uh, we have been redeemed by his blood. That's the focus of this chiastic structure. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is developing this idea of the mystery of the gospel. And he's talked about how Gentiles previously were outside the hope of Israel. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You know that passage. It starts in verse 11. And then he comes to how Gentiles are freed from them being, as it were, in spiritual Egypt. And he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what does the blood of Christ do? Well, verse 14 says that he, Jesus himself, is our peace. And, and, and the hour there, we can look at the context and confirm this. The hour he's talking about there is the fact that Jew and Gentile for a time were not at peace. Of course, prior to the New Testament period, that's exactly what happened for 1,500 years. God had separated Jew and Gentile. He had brought Israel out of Egypt by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And for 1,500 years, Jew and Gentile were separated. But now it's the blood of Christ, the greater Passover lamb, that brings peace, that brings reconciliation, that, as it says there in verse 14, brings Jew and Gentile together. So he's talking here about the temple in verse 14. He himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That dividing wall of hostility is a reference to the fact that there was a, a dividing wall in the temple. And there was a notice on the wall that said if a Gentile dares walk past this area into the Jewish part of the temple, they will suffer the consequence of death. So Jew and Gen the, the, um, the fact that that wall was there was symbolic of the division between Jew and Gentile. But now in Christ, this is the mystery of the gospel. Christ has broken down that middle wall and he has brought Jew and Gentile together. So we've, had a, we've seen that in previous videos, haven't we? We've seen how uh, John wants to draw our minds to the end of the story the finality of God's purpose when Jew and Gentile will be one in the kingdom of God. And it starts with the blood of Christ. Now let's expand this a little bit further and have a look at why there is this repetition of the, the title of God, who is, who was, and who is to come. Why does it mention that in this, this verse that we're looking at in this particular session? Well, you remember back when we had a look at verse five, where that title first comes, that the pronouns here is and uh, was and is to come. Sorry, not pronouns, verbs. To be. Uh, those are three quotations from the lives of Jacob, Moses, and Joshua. And we saw how each of those contexts teaches us similar things about the ecclesia and about the angels and so forth it's worthwhile going back to that video and having a look at uh, what we said there now there's another similarity between those three contexts and it's all to do with the land remember i mentioned earlier the land the erets uh translated as um, earth very often in the old testament but with the primary significance of course with the land of israel now ultimately of course the kingdom of god will fill the whole earth stone that spikes the image 
will start off in Israel, but will fill the whole earth over time. And the, the promises to Abraham will, will be expanded until uh, they inherit the earth. Now, Genesis 28, where Jacob saw the vision of angels and, and said, uh, Yahweh is in this place. It says in verse 13 there, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land of which you lie, I will give it to you and your offspring. So there's the, in, in that context, when Jacob was on holy ground, he was promised the land as uh, an inheritance forever. We know that's the promises to Abraham. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, where the angel appears to Moses in the bush, and God says, I will be with you. God promises him here in verse 17, that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. A reiteration of the promise to Abraham. Again, when Abraham is standing there on holy ground. Joshua chapter 1. The call of Joshua. Again, under angelic ministration. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you, just as I promised to Moses. Now, Joshua, of course, is going to go into that land, and he's going to bring about that inheritance. So all of these passages, again, are pointing us to the fact that uh, the land has been promised to Abraham and to his seed. Now, that brings us back to this verse that we're looking at in this video, which is verse 8. And I've highlighted here... Some of the language, uh, which again is quoted from the Old Testament, and this time to the context of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So God says, I am, and he finishes the, the series of titles with, I am the Almighty. Now you'll recognize that title of God. It's, it's rare after the book of Genesis. It's common in, in Genesis, this word Shaddai, and it's the name that is associated with God multiplying the seed of Abraham. And I think it's the first time that that name is used is in where Revelation quotes from, from Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And this is the time where God makes his covenant with Abraham, that I may name my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And that's the connection with this idea of, of the Almighty, the, the nourisher, the one who brings about many blessings. And, and every time you were, read that title, Almighty in Genesis, it's in the, the context of God bringing about this promised multitudinous seed of people. Now, here we come back to the mystery of the gospel, because, of course, a Jew looking at the covenant with Abraham would say, well, our father was Abraham. God gave him the covenant of circumcision, and that covenant is in Genesis chapter 17. And the Jews would say, well, that is a, a covenant exclusive to us, that when God said, I will multiply you greatly, it's talking about the, the Jewish nation. But, of course, the mystery of the gospel is very, very much hidden in the promises to Abraham. Right back in chapter 12, God promised Abraham, in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Not just the family of Israel. And that actually comes out as well in Genesis chapter 17. It says in verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So Abraham is exalted father. 
Abraham means the father of a multitude. A multitude of what? A multitude of nations, not just the Jews. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So there it is. There is the mystery of the gospel hidden away in the promise to Abraham that he would be a multitude of nations, not just the Jews. And kings would come from him. Well, there we come back to Revelation chapter 1, because isn't that exactly what John tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 5? Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings on earth. He is the, the king of kings, the main king that uh, comes through the seed of Abraham and then through, the, through the, uh, the, being the son of David. And the kings that are with him are those who will rule with the Lord Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. And so... Uh, verse 6 says he has made us a kingdom priests to his God and that's the promise that we have we shall be a kingdom of priests and then in verse 7 all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him now there's some ambiguity again there's, there's lots of this in Revelation now we made the point in our previous video that the all tribes of the earth will wail that's a reference to Zechariah chapter 12 and the, the mourning of the Jewish nation as they recognize their Messiah. But there's another way of looking at it, isn't it? All tribes, this multitude of nations, will uh, ultimately repent of their sin when they see their Messiah, whether they're Jew or Christian, and they shall be one in the kingdom of God. All right, well, there's another little bit we want to have a look at here. And uh, coming back to verse 8. What I've got on the screen there is the New King James Version. I'm using the ESV mostly in this series of videos, but uh, the New King James Version uses a slightly different uh, manuscript uh, rendering of verse 8, or it adds in what I've got marked, uh, highlighted there, uh, the beginning and the end, which roughly is a, a parallel phrase anyway to I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, because Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the end of the, the Greek alphabet. But the reason I put that in there is to, to show that there is another quotation here from the Old Testament. And it comes from the prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 41. Now, again, we need to look at the context here, but let's just jump in and read that verse. And then we'll figure out why Revelation is quoting this. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? Isaiah asks, and the, the answer comes back, I, Yahweh, the first or the beginning and with the last or the end, or the Alpha and the Omega, I am he. So for some reason, Revelation 1.8 goes back to Isaiah chapter 41, and there's reference to the fact that God is declaring himself in that context as the first and the last. Now, what is this talking about? What is the, the principle that is being brought to, across, to here, uh, across to us here? What is the, the meaning behind this particular title of God? Well, think about the beginning and the end. We, we just read in verses 6 and 7, two verses that end with the word, Amen. We made the point that God's purpose is so sure that we could say, Amen, at the beginning. And that's what John is 
um, developing here early on in Revelation. He's telling us the end of the story. He's telling us the great Amen right at the beginning of Revelation. And this is the principle that comes out in Isaiah. Uh, you go to Isaiah chapter 46, for instance, which says that God declares the end from the beginning. That means we could go right back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and say, Amen to God's purpose, right in the beginning. Amen, which is the last word of the Bible, Revelation 22, 21. We could have said Amen right at the beginning. And I think that's what the principle is of God being the, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That, that God's purpose is so sure, we can have such confidence such comfort in that confidence in the, in the context of the persecution the saints endure in Revelation. That there is light at the end of the tunnel. We know what the end of the story is. So from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, the beginning and the end, God's purpose is sure. Now, with that in mind, let's just have a look at a, a little bit of the context of Isaiah chapter 41. Now, leading up to it, we go back into chapter 40 and just pick out some of the principles here. What God is developing here through Isaiah is that he is in control, that they have nothing to fear from the nations. I mean, Isaiah talks about the time in which they're going to go into captivity ultimately in Babylon. God will, will rescue them out of that. And they have nothing to fear from, from Babylon or from Medo-Persia, from Greece, from Rome. No matter what nation comes against them, God is in control. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of his purpose. So, you readers of Isaiah, don't fear those nations. Don't fear the idols that they worship because their gods are nothing. He asked them in, in chapter 43, the nations, bring forth your witnesses. Can any of your gods declare the end from the beginning no there is only one god and his name is yahweh that's the broad context the magnificent context of uh, isaiah chapter 41 so we go back to isaiah chapter 40 here because some of the things that god says all nations are as nothing before him god dominates the nations they're absolutely nothing in his sight and by the way in this context he says that while the nations are nothing that particular nation israel are everything in his sight he asked the question in verse 18, to whom then when you liken God, God has no rival, there is no idol that can compare with the true one and living God. And then in verse 23, who brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He is, God is the king of kings, the ruler of rulers, the one who has dominion over all things. And isn't that the context here uh, early on in Revelation? That, that Jesus as God's representative, is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that we've been called to become a kingdom of priests, that Jesus will judge this world in righteousness. And no matter what man tries to do to frustrate God's purpose, God is in control. He is the first and he is the last. He is in control from the beginning to the end. And so we can go into chapter 41 and the context that leads up to uh, this phrase here, the first and the last, quoted in Revelation. Now, you notice the repetition of the word who there. The, uh, the prophet is asking the question, who is in control here? He says in verse 2, who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? 
He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with the sword, like driven stubble with a bow. He pursues them, passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Now, that is language of a nation, a conquering nation. And there's nothing that can stop this nation. Now, we could apply these words, verses 2 and 3, to any of those nations that conquered Israel. Any of the parts of Nebuchadnezzar's image, whether it was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, they conquered, they, they uh, demolished what was in their way, they dominated the land of Israel. But Isaiah asked the question, who stirred him up? Who is in control? And he repeats that in verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. You see, the answer to the question, of course, the, the, the who here is the one mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. The one who is and who was and who is to come. The one who is in supreme control and has mapped out history, calling the generations from the beginning. Right in the beginning, God had a purpose. And he knew, as he declared to Daniel in the image, he knew that one day he would raise up Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the divided nations of Europe. But no matter what they did to God's people, whether they... Uh, dominated the the Jewish nation or whether they persecuted the saints throughout the ages doesn't matter because God is the one who is in control God stirred up these these persecutors and these nations these conquerors and it's all part of God's purpose and, and they're just encapsulated in that title of God is the wonderful comfort for the saints as they're going through persecution at the hand of the fourth beast of revelation and when they look back at what the, the nations have done to uh, the people of Israel, and the, they'd be asking the question, well, is that it for Israel? They've been scattered, they're in dispersion. Is that the end of the story? And Revelation tells us no. No matter what Israel went through, no matter what the saints are going through, God's purpose is sure.